Welcome everyone to episode two of the Dear Kobe podcast. Still is unreal saying that, but I just want to start off by saying, you know, thank you to everybody that have uh, provided support in whether that's feedback, uh, listening to the show, commenting, whatever it may be that you're doing uh, it has been so, so helpful and I can't thank you enough. Um, it's really validated doing this project for me. And I'm so excited about just continuing here and just con- like making things better as much as I can because at the end of the day, this is just something I'm doing for fun. Um, and whatever I can do to improve it as we go along, uh, you know, make it more interactive with everyone, bring people on, like you'll hear later on the show. Uh, it's going to be just. It's going to just be so much more fun and including everyone in that process is going to be uh, so much more fun for me. So essentially what's going to happen today, we actually have a guest on the show. Uh, Second episode, I already got a guest. I guess we're doing things big here. But uh, one of my really, really good friends, Ruben, is coming on the show and we're going to just talk about what's going on with the... The movement right now, the Black Black Lives Matter movement, Um, you know, everything with George Floyd. And I felt that it was important to kind of hold off a little bit on the podcast episode for a week, just because I wanted to make sure that not only was I prepared to, you know, speak about this and provide my opinions or um, my thoughts on the matter, but I also wanted to get someone that has lived with injustices in his life um you know growing up and we'll talk about that uh, on the show as well during the interview but uh, i really wanted to have someone on the show that can kind of speak to their own experiences on everything and so i wanted to hold off on things for just a little bit but um super excited with how everything came out and um i think the discussion is going to continue as we go along right like it's not just going to be uh, one week of this it's it's going to be something that we're going to be constantly talking about most likely so um it, it'll be a topic that i bring up again and maybe from multiple perspectives um we'll see what happens but i did want to just intro that here um you'll hear our regular talk about Kobe, his importance, um, highlight some of his games uh, and what they mean to us uh, and provide some of his favorite, you know, our favorite moments on Kobe's career. So stay tuned for that. Um, We'll go ahead and get right into the interview with Ruben. All right. So we're here with uh, one of my really good friends, Ruben, uh, co-commissioner of fantasy football league that i've run for quite a long time I've known him i don't even know how long it's been rube how <laughs> i know seven years seven maybe? yeah seven eight years Six, uh, yeah yeah it's been been a long long time um we worked together at a prior job and stayed friends all these years so kind of wanted to bring him on just to have a discussion um i thought it was important based around what's going on now you know, with all the civil unrest, with the tragic loss of George Floyd and everything that's going on there, um, I thought it was a good idea to have a perspective on here that 
talks about all of that, but also your own, you know, kind of the things that you've been going through in your life with everything. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about yourself a little bit, introduce yourself, and then we can kind of jump into all of that other stuff. Uh, sure. Um, 31 years old, like I said, as we discussed, knowing each other for about seven years. Um, pretty much a chill person. Enjoy photography in my free time. Um, easy going. That's how I would, would describe myself, mostly. That's a good, good description. Um, so w- w- let's just start with you know, what's going on now in terms, like, what are your thoughts as, um, you know, living in Florida, predominantly long history of this type of stuff, but also, you know, as a black person living in America, what is your, you know, what's your take on all this stuff? How, how are you feeling about the protests about, um, you know, obviously the terrible, events that have transpired not only with George Floyd, but over the last couple of years, it's just been one thing after another almost. Uh, definitely. Um, it's, it's tough to see um, this to continue in the sense of seeing someone defenseless and their life taken before you. In, in a sense, it's different name, but end result, loss of life um it, it so it, it's really tough to see that on almost like a constant cycle year after year um seeing everyone get out with during the protest is um encouraging in the sense of i unfortunately we're, we're coming together and due to another loss of life but in a sense we're, we're, we're coming together for a, the betterment um, hopeful um, improvement of this country. Um, so I'm, I'm very hopeful that everyone will continue this. Um, I'm glad to see us banding together in a sense for um, a greater good, so to speak. Um, not just the black community, but people joining in that are hearing us. Um, we we are wanting accountability um, for the police departments. Um, and we also like we're dependent on getting people to listen and understanding. So it's kind of kind of twofold in that sense. So um, I'm hoping this continues in a sense of leading to the next you know progression towards betterment. Yeah, and that's and that's a good point, especially the second part, which is getting people to understand seems like it should be an easy thing to do right especially when it's kind of this type of message that uh black lives matter which it should be kind of it should be a logical thing but then when you think about it there are so many people out there that feel they come up with sort of different arguments to all this stuff and it's um something that i don't quite understand maybe it's just the way that I think, but it's it's sort of like, why can't we just have this discussion and, and just it be this discussion of figure out ways how we can improve just the way that we treat people. Um, it, it, It seems very logical to me to have that conversation. But then when you have, 
instances like you're talking about, like getting people to just understand how, you know, how it is to grow up and be a person of color uh, and just some of the things that people take for granted um, growing up that those people of color just aren't able to kind of, they aren't able to relate to that because they have had such a long period of being looked at in such a negative way. Right. Like how do you, do you think that that's the harder argument to have is just to try to get people to grasp that like on your end? Uh, Well, they have to be willing to listen. Um, Mm -hmm one's not going to come to a point of understanding another um, specific group of people's plight, struggle, hardships without having a willingness to listen. Um, There's definitely different studies that are out there in regards to, if you look at, if you want to go on a factual basis um, where black Americans are, uh, there was a study done, I believe, but Northeastern University, um, this is going back a couple of years, um, roughly a thousand people are shot to death by police officers every year. Um, and if you look at those deaths, those deaths, black Americans were twice as likely to be shot and killed by police officers compared with the representation and population. Um, we're three times more likely to be shot and killed by officers during interactions where the victim is posing little to no threat to officers. Um, so really it, it, it does take people um, wanting to have that conversation in order to get an understanding. Um, it, it can't be, can't be forced upon people. You have to have that own willingness to change or willingness to learn. Yeah. And I think, um, that that willingness to understand it seems like it's a large hurdle but i think what's going on now is a is is it's almost like it's being pushed or like put forefront for so many people that there's been conversations had between you know members of a family that have never really had these type of conversations before uh, whether that's like white families, uh, Hispanic, Asian, whatever you, whatever it may be, like there are people who think, for the lack of a better term, like racist-like, right? Like they have these preconceived notions or uh, ideas that one race is better than the other, or stereotyping, all of these types of stuff, but that notion of or that idea of understanding but also like listening is is you would think would be an easy thing for people to do but unless they're willing to do it you're really never going to get anywhere um and it's it's an interesting conversation because i think we're in a time now where you have a lot of people who you have a lot of spectrums, right? You have older people who may have experienced um, certain things in their lifetime. And then you have a lot of young people who are just growing up and they're, 
their mentality is a lot different. They tend to be more inclusive. Um, it's like these two things are coming together now. And what I've seen is a very encouraging sign that more people are, are willing to listen. Um, and that's just anecdotally, but I think that goes such a long way to hopefully creating change. Um, and then we also have to work on just getting people more involved in a local state and like national level in terms of the people that we put into power mm-hmm. are, are like the people who are directly influencing all these things, right? And that's just not, that's not just a Democratic, Republican, whatever. There's, it's not just factionally because there are Democratic people in some of these states that are kind of contributing to this stuff, right? So it's, it's like more of a research the people that you're voting for, or if you're not even voting, you need to be out there and vote because if you're not doing that, if you're going to say that it's just not even worth it, then there's never going to be a change. It's just always going to be this constant, hey, you know, th- these are the issues that I'm having. These are the problems, but not really contributing to any sort of solution, right? So uh, I don't know how you feel about that. No, I, I definitely agree in a sense of um, it seems like there is a willingness, um, you know, just as far as people. Um, wanted to have the conversation, uh, but it's it's definitely going to take, as you were mentioning, getting people involved uh, on a local uh, government level in a sense of pushing for changes, um, requesting for accountability of those in authority. Um, so it, it it it's all a matter of taking time to get to that get to that understanding, and then taking those next steps. Um, it, it feels a little encouraging, um, just with this time around and experiencing it. Um, I don't know. I, I, just me speaking just personally from my experience. It's, there's definitely a different feeling just with viewing the public in the sense of how the protests have been going and seeing a lot of the information that's being shared. Our generation has been sharing a lot of the data online, um, locations of protests. Like, if there's a, a case that needs attention and sharing out, sharing petitions. Um, but there, there's more to be done. This is basically the beginning and it's going to be a long road to continue to get to where we want to. Yeah. And, and you kind of spoke about uh, some of the stuff going on now with all the protests and things of that nature. Um, the protests yesterday in Philadelphia, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was, tens of thousands of people were there um, protesting. So it's, there's still protests going on in Minneapolis, um, all over Florida, New York, LA, like all of these places. um, I think, I mean, not I think there were 50, I think 50 states had protests of some kind regarding this. So it's, it's uh, something that's important. uh, And I think it's something that's, it feels it just feels different than uh similar similarly typed events in the past this one feel it's it's almost like a enough is enough type of thing uh which it is and why i think 
this is going to have a lasting impact is because I think so many people are out there that just want to see changes, right? And I think this is going to continue until, you know, to November, which is, you know, the elections for um, not just president, but so many other type of uh, governmental roles, Senate, Congress, things of that nature. But past that, because this is something that is never really going to stop, right? Those those things are still going to continue even after these events, uh, even after all these protests have gone on. Like, there's still going to be stories of police using excessive force uh, when it's not even needed or unfortunately killing people uh, when like you mentioned before cases where you just there's not a need for deadly force in those types of situations so i think we just have to keep having these conversations and we have to keep being out there and pushing people in power to make changes so that it reduces these instances from happening I definitely agree. Um, you touched base on a sense of use of force. And I, it's one point I actually wanted to bring up because um, recently the FBI stated that they're going to come out with a report this summer in regards, in regards to use of force. Um, they have the national use of force data collection, but just over 40% of uh, law enforcement officers or agencies report to that. So, Oh, wow. when we're asking for account when we're asking for accountability if our local police departments are not sending in data in regards to the use of force we should be asking them why yeah, why are exactly. they not providing that information and if we're we're if we're seeing a big trend based on just barely 40% of data being provided it leads to a larger story out there as to what else is going on um, so this, it, it takes, it's going to take those steps of local government and, you know, local action within our communities, um, to then put, and also pushing for holding all agencies responsible and being, being transparent with the information that they, they hold. We shouldn't have officers out on the street that have a long complaint list, um, and their discipline, uh, records are withheld. These are public they are sworn to protect and serve the public. These records should be made public as well. So we know who we are paying to put into these positions of power. Yeah, that's a good point. And if if you think about uh, those instances where some of these police officers that are getting, you know, that have these incidents and then you look at their record and they have, some of them have like 60 Uh, cases or instances incidences of some sort of uh wrongdoing of some kind you know whether it's uh an issue in an arrest or whatever but it's it's almost like in my head i'm like if you had 60 instances at your job you you wouldn't be you wouldn't be there right like you would think you would be uh, gone by that point so it's it's almost like why is it that some of these police precincts are 
I'm I, I don't really know too much in terms of the intricacies, but it almost seems like there's a protection in some of these cases. It's like you're not even disclosing the instances of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, maybe you caught sixty, but there's probably like forty more that you don't even know about. Right. So it's that accountability thing, that transparency of hey, you gotta start weeding out some of these people because you what's happening is is a growing distrust of police officers and that's you know there are some police officers out there that are really good and and want to do a good job and want to protect the communities and and things of that nature but then they're being overshadowed by these instances of just malicious intent almost to do harm or i don't know exactly what it is because i can't speak for them but when you look at it visually comes across like they're just intentionally wanting to do bad things. Yeah, and um, just even seeing during the protest, seeing acts of for you know um, excessive force being used against people who are not posing a threat. Um, so protesters has their arms up in the air, not in the sense of attacking anyone. They shouldn't be shoved to the ground. Their their protective masks being pulled down and pepper sprayed. Um, and I, I I do want to highlight, I mean, it should go without saying, officers have a very difficult job. I can imagine it being stressful, um, potentially the, their safety being put at risk on a multitude of multiple occasions. Yeah. Our, if we're directing billions of dollars into police agencies for weapons, um, tanks, riot gear, all this, you know, reallocate those funds and also being you know, taking care of mental health, whether it's therapy, um, counseling, anything to, to, we shouldn't have stressed officers out on the streets. If that, if that might be a, a, you know, if that might be causing some outburst of anger, um, just, just throwing out an idea in a sense of helping them out in a sense as well. Um, we're not just looking for accountability, but Hey, if, there's an opportunity to help them do their jobs better. Let's let's put funding into that as well, um, in a less aggressive manner um, than what we're doing now. Yeah, that's an excellent point, and it also kind of to go back to some of the ways you can make changes. Because I know right now one of the things um, that a lot of people are talking about is you know defunding. Uh, some police departments in in different cities and and things of that nature. But that doesn't necessarily mean just cut out all that money. It could mean like you're talking about, why are we paying for, uh, you know, all this military SWAT gear uh, of all these kinds, when we can put some of that money into uh, mental health professionals being in, you know, full time in police departments or, more support for those police officers that might be dealing with a lot of stress, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean you just have to stop giving the money, but put the money in better uses than what do you need, you know, full on SWAT gear for every single police officer on the force, right? Like maybe think about using that money for ways to kind just help those existing police officers cope with the job that they have that like you mentioned is stressful. I'm sure because there's already a distrust of police officers, but 
maybe there's a way to help without necessarily having to put everyone in such a high tense situation all the time. Like look out for your police officers and and people on the force. And then hopefully that'll help trickle it down. But it's like all these conversations tend to go in such an extreme that people don't want to listen sometimes they're just like oh no that just means we're gonna have less cops which means more crime and it's just not the case like look at the statistics and it'll tell you that yeah and that that's definitely an excellent point um in a sense of if there is an area of crime we need to provide areas with resource if uh, if an area is impoverished it's going to tend to lead to more crime so if we're allocating resources for whether it's um, homeless people or people who are um, in, in search of jobs, like placing resources to avoid crimes, just placing heavily policing an area is going to lead to it's going to lead to maybe some unfortunate um incidents in a sense of where excess force is being used when it shouldn't have been. We need to be able to place those correct resources for, like I said, homeless, um, education, um, being able to provide opportunities. If we have billions of dollars for the pol- to fund police for gear, we can, we can reallocate funds to be able to improve those areas that are being heavily policed. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Um, so one one of the things I just want to speak about briefly here is your own experiences, you know, with police or whomever is in, in that sort of, you know, security, whatever it may be. Because the reason I bring it up is because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm Hispanic, but I'm also light skinned, right? Like I'm uh, basically white. <laughs> so I have a sense of... um privilege in that way that by first look you're going to assume that i'm white or just whatever the case may be and i might not get uh, a second look in the way that some of my cousins that are you know from dominican republic but they're much darker skinned and if they walk down the street they might get a second look uh, or friends of mine that are black that just have that first notion almost there was a there was a I, I believe there was a comedian that i was listening to it i can't remember his name right now but he was talking about if or i'm sorry it was a, it was a, a white comedian he was talking about if he had a like brand new television flat screen tv that he was just walking around his neighborhood with no one would bat an eye they would just they wouldn't say anything but if it was a black person doing that immediately there would be you know, calls to the police or just some sort of negative thought about that process. So it's like just growing up with a specific skin color gets you this this almost negative thought process by some people. And I'm just wondering how you um, have grown up in terms of experiences that you've had or mm-hmm. if there's any cases that you can think back to where you felt that uh, personally. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, I'm, I've experienced it ever since a young age. Um, I've grown up in central Florida most of my life. 
Um, I can recall countless um, interactions. Um, going back to being at my own school bus stop in elementary school, noticing that there's a police officer car like a few feet away. So naturally, as kids, we're all looking. And officer gets out the car and asks, why am I looking at his at his car and threatened to get me suspended for glancing over his way? I actually got out and of you were in elementary my, school. I was six years old. And I don't know why wow. I was the only one being talked to. Um, I was a passenger seat. I was in the passenger seat of uh, the back passenger seat, I should say, to clarify. A couple of friends were playing basketball. We're going to go to the nearest gas station and get some you know, Gatorade, Powerade to, to rehydrate. Um, driver gets stopped. It's driver was is biracial, half black, half white. The other three passengers were Hispanic. I'm the only black passenger. It turns into three cars pulling up, three three police officer cars. So about a total of four or five officers in total for us. And out of the five people, I'm the only one getting searched. Mind you, I wasn't even driving the car. Um, I was the only one with quote unquote dark skin uh, being present. Wow. Um, leaving the movie theater, opening my car door, uh, officer turning his lights on from the other end of the parking lot, pulled up next to me and asking me if it's my vehicle. Um, just, just weird instances. Like I've just never, I've never thought to, I would experience. And when I'm, when I share those experiences with anyone else, like it, I, haven't heard anyone come across those situations. Um, so if there's a situation where I'm pulled over, I'm overly cautious. Um, before yeah, the officer sure. even gets to my car, I've got my windows down. I've got the interior lights on. I've got, I'll shut off my vehicle. Um, and I'll announce every move that I make. If they're asking me for license and registration, I'll let them know where my wallet's located, what move I'll need to make to reach it. Um, uh, so that they're aware. Um, so I, I feel like I need to be overly cautious just so I can make it through the night, live to see another day. Um, it's scary to think that way, but I just feel like this is the, based on what I've, I've seen in over my lifetime, it's, it's what it's necessary for me to do. Yeah, it's almost like those things are things that you believe or are true, but they're things you need to do that you feel you need to survive, which is kind of like a crazy thing to think about, right? Mm -hmm. That you're just living your life. You're just coming out of a movie theater and going to your car and being asked if that vehicle is yours, making the implication that you're trying to steal the vehicle when you're just trying to go home. Right. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just when I hear those, those stories and I've experienced it, um, not, personally with me but people that i've been with um you know i grew up in patterson new jersey a very um impoverished city with uh, a large um not even minority but it, it's a majority there of black and hispanic uh people over mm -hmm. in that city and it's the 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 way that police distrust its citizens uh i've seen it firsthand and um, one instance that I can remember, and I was, I think I was 11 years old, um, myself, uh, one of my best friends at that time who was black. And then another one of my friends who were, who was Asian, uh, were walking home from the basketball court and it was a, a basketball court that we went to school at. So it was like 
our court that we were allowed to use and we were walking out and a cop's like just drives by us and he's like why were you in that court and was asking us like what we were doing and we were 11 years old just you know walking home and we got questioned a little bit um but he was speaking more so to my friend my black friend at the time and it just I didn't think about it at that time, like why, why that was happening. But looking at it back now, it's, it's almost like we were all there together and it almost just seemed like this spotlight was put on my friend because of his skin color. And it's, 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 it definitely doesn't feel good to like think that. Right. And that type of mindset holds, like it holds onto you as you grow up and it just makes you feel like, man, we need people to understand that we're at the end of the day, we're all just humans. Like we're all human beings. So why not treat everyone like that? Right. So it, it's a very, I, I think this is something that's never going to go away fully, but I do think that over time, you know, this, maybe this is just the, the optimist in me, but I want, just people of all types to be uh, treated equally, but specifically black people need to be. And that's why that whole phrase of like all lives matter, like that's obvious, but right now that's not how it's, that's, that's not the current state of things. So we need to focus on how to improve that. Um, you, you definitely, you definitely worded that greatly. Um, when and we're not asking for preferential treatment we're just asking for equal treatment we should be yeah. treated like it's we're this is human treatment yeah you shouldn't you're, treat you're each you're other like less than the bare minimum which is to matter it's not even just like treat this specific type of people better than everyone else it's like bring black people on equal platforms right but yeah, I think this is a conversation that it would be great to kind of uh, come back to in a few months and it'd be awesome to have you on and just see where things have improved, if if at all, um, and just try to see, you know, as we get closer to big elections happening with, you know, city officials, um, commissioners, governors, presidents senators all of that stuff um is going to be changing soon so the more that we're out there and and just researching all this information and and taking part in that process the more we can help to direct change in the places that need it the most yeah i'll i'll love to come on and we can definitely revisit this conversation and see where things are going so um once again everyone Definitely stay educated and make sure you take part with everything that's going on locally around you. Um, so we can definitely see the change that we're seeking. Definitely. So we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, we'll come back to um, the discussion that tends to happen on the show, which is a discussion based around a game of Kobe 
and how we can relate that to either our own lives or stories that we have about him, so on and so forth. So we'll be back in just a moment. All right, we're back. Uh, so now is the portion of the show where uh, I usually will bring up uh, one of Kobe's games since we're starting from his rookie season, you know, through the rest of his career. Last episode, I started with this first game that he actually played as a rookie. Um, what I want to do this time around, though, is bring up a portion of his uh, beginning of the start. So he had his next 10 games. I just wanted to highlight a trend that I noticed, which is uh, just quickly, his next couple games were against the Knicks, uh, the I'm sorry, the Charlotte Hornets, Toronto, uh, Atlanta, Houston, Sacramento, LA Clippers, and Phoenix. One trend uh, that I wanted to bring up is there was a lot of variance in these 10 games where he was starting, or I should say he was playing, you know, like three, four, five, six minutes, and then he would play 17, 15, 20 minutes in, in some of those games. So it's like... One of the things that I wanted to ask you, Ruben, is just in terms of that starts, like when you're playing so little and then you're going to playing such a high like amount of minutes, do you, do you think that that's something that would cause a player to start out issues with just getting used to, you know, the NBA uh, style or, or the, the type of game that you would in the, you know, the pro leagues? Uh, I don't know. What what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, it definitely, in my opinion, it would have to be difficult because if him making the decision to come out of high school and compete at the top of the line competition, he's expecting greatness of himself. And you have a coaching staff that you're getting five minutes how much impact is he going to really be able to have within those within those minutes? Um, so maybe uh, maybe I'm assuming our mental hurdles to get over, just in the sense of your expectation is that you're going to be great, um, and he has to be okay with three minutes and sixteen seconds within his second yeah. game uh, of action, um, and it, it's it looking over his rookie year, it's it's tough to believe how, how little he played um, minute wise. Um, when you look at the totality of his career, it's, it's shocking in the sense to see that this great player had to deal with very little minutes. Yeah. And very, for someone that we know um, has, has, has shot so many times in games um, has had so many field goals to see you know, something like in 17 minutes, he's, he's, he has three field goals um, or one field goal. Some of these games, it's it's kind of astonishing that he was able to work through a, a rookie year that I'm sure for him coming from a highly viewed prospect in, in Philly to then go to the NBA uh, to a franchise like the Lakers and overcome this sort of up and down and just all over the place type of rookie year to then 
turn that into the career that he was able to turn it into is is kind of nuts. And if one thing I wanted to bring up just quickly is the fact that he is top five in scoring in the NBA and he had a rookie year where he didn't really score that much. It's almost it's it's like imagine if he came in with a season like LeBron did when he was a rookie and he was yep. you know scoring all these points like I could very easily see a situation where Kobe could be two or probably one if he had a stronger start as a rookie. But obviously with the Lakers at that time, there were a lot of veterans on the team and Mm -hmm. he was was just kind of learning his role, which I think ultimately was good for Kobe to do. Um, I think he learned a lot. But that was just something that I noticed over that span of like the next 10 games that I wanted to highlight rather than going through them individually that one of the things that Kobe preached was his his mentality of how hard he worked. And I think seeing this and then seeing some of the following years that come up and, and how crazy his scoring streaks went uh, over his career, it, it's, it's almost, it really speaks to that like mindset thing of you put in what you, or you get out of it what you put in. And I think, he's demonstrated that he's put in a lot of work when it comes to basketball. Um, And I think we can, since we're speaking about scoring streaks, I know you wanted to bring up a moment uh, that he had a pretty big scoring game. Uh, If you want to speak on that for a little bit. Yes. um, My favorite Kobe moment, one of my favorites, Uh, I'm going to go with the game against the Mavericks in 2005. Mm -hmm. He scores 62 points in three quarters. Um, if you look at the first three Outscores quarters, the entire Mavericks team. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you, you kind of think, what if, if he could, he definitely could have got to 70 or, or even he might've had that yeah, an 80 point game or even more. Um, mm-hmm. it was definitely just one of those things. You're just like, is he really going like off like that? And it's, it's one of my favorite moments just because he, he was done third, third quarter sat down and, just yeah 62 is enough for me tonight like (laughs) (laughs) it was crazy yeah it's it's crazy and it's also like how there's so many variables in that like how does the other team feel about this like are they just like are they aware of how i mean they're probably aware of how dominant he is but how much are you aware that hey this guy has 30 points uh at the end of the first quarter or like he's just and it's also another thing that i think about is how almost helpless you have to feel as a defender when you're the person you're guarding is just scoring whenever he wants to and there's like nothing you can do to stop it yeah at that point you just got to hope that he misses and like defend everybody else a little bit better because when you're 22 for 25 on free throws and he's what eighteen for thirty-one for the whole game. Um, there's not much you can do for for him except for hoping that he goes cold. It's focused on everybody else, and hopefully, be able to come out with a win. But yeah, in this case, it's kind of like must have just shattered their confidence. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, that's a wonderful moment. Um, what I want to highlight for this. Um, show is 
one of the moments that I think about vividly is when he basically first came into the league. He was doing his uh, summer league for um, the Lakers. And he had a moment where he just did this insane dunk because when he was in Philly, he, he actually participated in dunk contests and he was he was an excellent dunker even in high school. But this moment was almost like his moment of showing the the rest of the NBA like, yeah, I'm coming type of thing. Like he was he was just as fierce as a rookie or even before he got into the like actual regular season. He was just as fierce at that point as he was at the end of his career when he was scoring, what, 62, I think, versus Utah for his last game ever. And like that's just crazy to think about for the one person to f- be so fueled and motivated mm-hmm. his entire career, and and I think that's just it's such a wonderful like opening and closing type of book for a career. So I wanted to highlight that quickly. But yeah, that game versus the Mavs is is amazing. And one of the things I remember during that season as well is he went on some sh- crazy streaks of scoring like forty in nine games, I think it was. And then he had like 50 in three games. I don't quite remember exactly what the ranges were, but that, that type of mentality to just take over a game yep. is, is something that Kobe had in spades. Yeah. It's um, definitely an incredible career. And there's just those moments um, for, for my lifetime, Kobe is always, there just for his his 20 NBA 20 year NBA career um excluding like just that when you're speaking to his mindset you can like just see it just watching those games if you're not there in person like just watching his games on TV it's just a sense of I've got this give me the ball our our team is coming out of this with a W if not we're, we're giving our 100% absolute best effort if you're not going to give it I am um, <laughs> yeah so it just just amazing um just to watch his games and then bring up those scoring streaks of um 50 points uh i think he had it was four 50 point games um and then just his history of 40 point games just i don't know just just absolute art on the court watching him play yeah that's a wonderful way to put it um but yeah, that's that's about uh, all I had. Um, I don't know if you have anything else you want to talk about or bring up. Um, I know one thing I will just say in closing is uh, Ruben is probably one of the best photographers I know. So Thank you. I'll make sure to put your uh, information in the show notes and stuff like that. But if you're interested in getting some shots and you live in the Central Florida area, hit him up. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for having me on and I look forward to continuing to hear your podcast. Definitely. Thank you so much and see you guys uh, on the next one. <laughs>